15 years on, it still sounds pretty modern and good and, uh, you know, gave me some of the same chills that it, that it used to. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. Tall buildings shake, voices escape, singing sad, sad songs. Tilted chords strung down your cheeks, bitter melodies turning your orbit around. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. How is everyone doing? It's great to be here talking about music at you. We have a fun topic for this week's episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about a very momentous record, one of the great rock records of the last 20 years. If you're making a list of your favorite rock records, this one's probably going to be high up there. The record I'm talking about is Yankee Hotel Foxtrot by Wilco. Uh, April 23rd is the record's 15th anniversary. And it just seemed like a good excuse to delve into this meaty album, this meaty masterpiece. So when thinking about this record, I'm reminded of a quote uh, that Grail Marcus said about the band's second record. He said that that record felt like a passport back to America for people who had become so estranged from their own country that they felt like foreigners even when they were in it. And uh, I feel like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot had a similar effect when it came out in 2002. Uh, it's important to remember the circumstances of this album's release. Uh, and, you know, this has all become part of the mythology of the album. You know, you know, Wilco spends much of 2000 working on it. And they're going through a bunch of different versions of all the songs. And you can hear those alternate takes uh, in, in bootlegs that have subsequently come out. Fascinating to listen to. They're very easy to find. If you just Google Yankee Hotel Foxtrot demos... You can hear these recordings, you know, and they're and they're they're chasing something. They they want you know they're they're looking for something that that isn't just going to be what they've done before. That, that what they're really doing is trying to find a 21st century version of folk music, something that sounds ancient on one hand, and then on the other hand, feels modern. It, 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 that feels like it has that sort of digital crush of information that was already starting to come into effect in 2000. I mean, when we, when we think back to that time, it, it seems so long ago. And, you know, it can't even compare to the Russian information that we're getting now. But at the turn of the century, you know, people were just starting to reckon with this for the first time. So Wilco's trying to bring all this in, and, you know, Jeff Tweedy's writing these big songs about America, Ashes of American Flags, you know, Jesus, etc., War on War. So they're working on this record. They get it done. Reprise Records, their record label, doesn't want to put it out. So that becomes a big thing. The record is supposed to come out on September 11th, 2001. But the record label doesn't want to put it out. So it ends up going up on Wilco's website uh, where people can stream it for free starting on September 18th, 2001. And... Because of the songs on this record, songs that seem to be prescient 
you know, that, that seemed to have almost predicted in a way what happened in America in the fall of 2001. It, it, it just becomes this record that sort of defines that moment. You know, you have the lyrics on the album, which, you know, are, are dealing with identity, you know, the, the, the difficulty in communicating in an age where there's so much uh, information and, and there's so much uh, talking going on. There's so much talking, but very little listening, very little received information. You know, all these themes are resonant, but then there's also just the sound of the record. You know, a very broken down sound where there's this just free-floating noise entering into the picture at every corner. You know, that first song, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. You know, this sort of punch-drunk feel to that song where you're wobbling. You know, it feels like the aftermath of a horrible event that song does you know there's a numbness to it there's a sense that you don't even really get your bearings on that song until the last minute where that piano part comes in and then it kind of steadies and you finally get a sense of where you are and the rest of the record is sort of exploring you know these these ideas of like what it means to live in a modern age um even though like a lot of the lyrics don't have like a a literal sort of narrative to them you know it's about sort of suggesting moods and and suggesting emotions you know that was the course that Jeff Tweedy's songwriting had taken at that time so you have this narrative of the record this sort of big 9-11 record you have this other narrative where Wilco became sort of emblematic of underground musicians trying to survive in a corporate in a corporatized sort of music industry which at that time was a big theme. Of course, things have changed so much since then that in a way it's hard to connect with that narrative of the record. And then there was the stuff that came out in the movie. I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, the Sam Jones documentary, all the inter intraband drama that was going on, the fight between Jeff Tweedy and Jay Bennett, <laughs> you know, which, you know, it, of the many sad things about Philip Seymour Hoffman dying uh, at a tragically young age is the fact that he never got to play Jay Bennett in a film. Because you watch I Am Trying to Break Your Heart and you just feel like this should have been turned into a biopic. You know, a biopic about the making of this record starring Philip Seymour Hoffman as Jay Bennett. And I think Peter Sarsgaard as Jeff Tweedy. That would be my casting of that biopic. Um... So this is a fascinating record. There's a lot to get into it with it. You know, you have all these narratives and you have just the fact that this is just a great record. Tremendous songs on it. And uh, I think it is an album that holds up. And it's an album that I had a lot of fun talking uh, about uh, with my good friend Rob Mitchum. He's been a guest on this pod before. Longtime music writer. You may know him from Pitchfork. He's written for Stereo Gum. He's written for a lot of British magazines. He's a great dude, great music writer. We had a good time talking about this record. So without further ado, here's me and Rob talking about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Well, Rob, thanks for having you on. Friend of mine, friend of the pod now officially. Yeah, the uh, second time. So now I'm promoted to friend status. Exactly. You're the, the, the two-timers club. You're, you're an official two-timer. Right. Um, so... I wanted to have you on because I know you have Wilco opinions. 
and also I wanted to say, this is unrelated to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but you were the first person to refer to Wilco as a dad rock band. So you're, you're part of Wilco history in a way. Yeah, it's, um, I don't know, it, it, it could be disputed, I guess. I was looking at Wikipedia today for uh, Sky Blue Sky, and they actually quoted somebody else calling them dad rock before I did. So well, I'm not sure which uh, review came out first, but they say uh, Pitchfork's Rob Mitt also described them as dad rock. I see, so. but I think since you did it in uh, Pitchfork, it, it counts more. Like, yeah. where, where, like, where was that other review? Uh, I don't remember what it was. See, exactly. Yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> and I feel like this is an important part of Wilco history and music in modern music writing history because dad, now everyone uses dad rock to describe every rock band. Right. And, and as I always say, I actually got it from uh, another Pitchfork critic at the time, Chris Ott, who on the what used to be the private Pitchfork staff message board, uh, was and this brings it back to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. He like was bashing YHF using Dad Rock, and then I eventually used it in the blurb, the year-end blurb for the albums of the year list, um, trying to twist it around on him and make it a positive use of Dad Rock in reference to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Uh, only to you know a few years later use it as a pejorative and apparently tar them with that forever. See, and, and now Chris Dodd's going to tweet about this podcast 27 times. So oh, I appreciate you, you bringing his name up. Yeah, I, I think the term dad rock, and, and I have this on my brain because there's actually a chapter in my next book about dad rock. I wrote a long chapter about dad rock, and I was sort of investigating the roots of that term. And I talked to Simon Reynolds about this. And I mean, it, it seems to, as far as I can tell, date back to the mid-90s. And uh, like the, the origin story I've heard is that it was first used to describe a photo of Noel Gallagher, Paul McCartney, and Paul Weller. Huh. They were recording a benefit album uh, for Bosnian refugees. And some a-hole in the British press decided to take this sort of nice thing that they were doing and refer to them as like dad rock. Yeah, so, yeah, so it was like a, a, a volley in the Britpop Wars yes, of the mid-90s. Yeah. Ex exactly. So anyway, that's a long segue. Let's get back to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Tell me, you know, I, I, I know that you listened to this record again. You revisited it knowing that you're going to be on the podcast. Like, what are your impressions of this record now, maybe versus how they were like 15 years ago? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, it surprised me how much I still liked it. Um, this is like sort of the classic example for me of the album that I listened to so many times in the couple of years after it came out that I just kind of used up my enthusiasm for it. And I hardly ever listen to it anymore. So uh, preparing for the podcast, I put it on a couple more times. And I like, honestly, I thought it held up pretty well. And I mean, as we might get into, I don't think as much of Wilco as I did at the time. Like, I kind of sort of fell out of love with them in subsequent years and over subsequent albums. Um, so I wasn't quite sure if I would still feel the same about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. But, uh, yeah, I think it, it's 15 years on. It still sounds pretty pretty modern and good and, uh, you know, gave me some of the same chills that it, that it used to. You know, when I was listening to the record uh, today, you know, getting ready to talk to you, you know, and... We're going to get into the mythology of this record and the backstory and all that. We'll get into that in a little bit. But the thing that stood out to me as a surprise, maybe, 
uh, was uh, the poppiness of this record. Because I feel like the narrative of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is that it's this sort of difficult uh, art rock, you know, sort of brainy experimental record. But um, there's a lot of songs on here that have become staples of, of Wilco's live show that are these big crowd-pleasing numbers like Jesus, etc., Heavy Metal Drummer, I'm the Man Who Loves You. I mean, that's close to a quarter of the record right there. Um, I mean, it really does balance the sort of like crowd-pleasing aspects of Wilco with some of the more sort of discursive, noisy aspects of it. Um, yeah, it's funny you, you mentioned that because sort of the first time I played it back, the song that really jumped out at me was Heavy Metal Drummer, which, you know, that was the, you know, the quote-unquote single off that album, and, you know, it was much cooler to say you liked Reservations or something off of it. <laughs> um, but Heavy Metal Drummer, the like, just the sound of it, I mean, it, it's a great, catchy song, of course, and it's nothing super challenging, but then the way they produced it is, like, pretty incredible, I think, and, like, it's got to be probably their best pop song, I would say. I was trying to think if there's anything that trumps it. Um, but yeah, it seems uh, that like maybe that aged a lot better than some of the more out there experiments on the record. Well, Jesus, Jesus, et cetera, again, you know, in terms of like the pop songs, I feel like that has become the signature song maybe in a way on this record. I, it seems to be the song that when I talk to people who maybe aren't huge music fans or, or aren't super into Wilco, like that's a song that they talk about. And I, there was that, you know, there's that TV show Billions on Showtime. Mm-hmm. They had a recent episode where they talked about Jesus, et cetera, and they were using the Jeff Tweedy, Jay Bennett relationship as a metaphor for like people who are partners and they don't quite get along, but they somehow make it work and then they split wow. up. And yeah, I was like, that's a much weirder show than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they use Jesus, et cetera, as an example, uh, you know, and really I, I was assuming watching it that that was a song that was picked because it, I think in the popular consciousness for, for whatever reason, that's become the song that, that people latch on to. Um, I- I think it does kind of probably of any song on that record maybe predict where Wilco was headed. Like I think, you know, a lot of sort of Sky Blue Sky, Wilco the Album era, Wilco can kind of be traced back to, I guess, you know, it's sort of, you're, you're going to make this sound like an insult, but sort of the like warmer, softer rock Wilco that they sort of evolved into and may still be at. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> right, right. That, yeah, and but you know, I mean, Jesus, etc. I remember at the time was a song that a lot of people latched onto because um, it was a 9/11 song. Mm-hmm. It, it was a song that, like, because you know, uh, you know, the story, the, you know, the mythology of this record, you know, the, it, it it was supposed to come out on September 11th, 2001. It ended up being streamed on Wilco's web- website on September 18th, you know, because there was the whole deal about uh, how Reprise didn't want to put the record out originally and, you know, that whole thing that was recounted in the documentary. Um, and this song, Jesus, etc., you know, there's the line in there about the tall building shake, voices escape, singing sad, sad songs, like that line being a line that people latched onto as being sort of a prescient line on the record. Um, I mean, I remember that, uh, you know, being a big contributor sort of to the narrative of 
Yankee Hotel Foxtrot being a 9-11 record, which in a way, I mean, maybe that's not as resonant now as it was at the time, but I, but I, but back then when it came out, it seemed like that was a big selling point for the record. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, I remember listening to it all that fall. I, I lived in Washington, D.C. Uh, that fall, um, and I... I don't have a good 9-11 story at all. I was up in Baltimore when it all happened, so there was, you know, nothing going on nearby me. But I remember a lot of drives listening to my, like, burned CDR of, you know, painstakingly downloaded MP3s of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. (laughs) And, yeah, finding all these little lyrical nuggets that had, you know, accidental resonance entirely. It's like the kind of thing where they couldn't have written that song after uh, September 11th and not have it come off totally cheesy. They right. just kind of lucked into this very resonant image. I mean, it's both that and, you know, a lot of Ashes of American Flags. Right. Obviously, is very uh, sort of accidentally poignant in light of what happened um, right around that time, yeah. Yeah, that song and War on War being another song that right. kind of has that resonance. And, I mean, I just remember hearing this record, and it just the, you know, it starts off with I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. And it's this very sort of broken down uh, sound where it, it does feel like uh, coming, uh, it feels like being in the aftermath of something. There's a numbness to that, a sort of like you're not quite steady on your feet. You don't have your bearings to you. You know, like if you want to kind of read that into the record, it, it's there. Just the shakiness of, of that first song where it doesn't seem to come together until the end, and then you go into camera right after that. Um, I mean, like, kind of going back to like when the record first came out. I mean, you were just talking about this earlier. Living in D.C., like, what was your experience with Wilco at that time? I mean, were you a fan of the early records, uh, and how did that kind of bring you into Yankee Hotel Foxtrot? Yeah, so I was a very big Wilco fan at the time. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and even though I was uh, I was at school in Michigan before I moved to D.C., um, I'd be back in Chicago a lot um, around the holidays, and Wilco tended to play holiday shows in Chicago. Like, for a while there, they had a traditional Thanksgiving run at the Riviera that I would always go to. I think that was that was I think they did it maybe two or three or four years in a row right around the time sort of between being there and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, so being there is when I got into them. I was too young to really know anything about Sunvolt. Um, I'm pretty sure I read about Woco uh, in the Chicago Tribune through a Greg Cott review because he, of course, was always a huge booster of them, and uh, I was sort of of the age where I would buy anything that he recommended. Uh, so got into them with being there. I liked Summer Teeth. I saw them a lot on that tour and really liked them those songs more live than I liked it on the record. Um, but then when Yankee Otto Foxtrot came out, it, it sort of, I guess, aligned with me maybe trying sort of newer types of music, uh, more experimental types of music. I mean, it for me, even though they came out, I think, I don't know, at least one or two years apart, it's like totally linked with Kid A in my mind, just as like albums that you put on and that first track just is completely unexpected, um, which I don't think you can really get anymore for a variety of reasons, but it was two <laughs> cases where you had this idea of what the band sounded like in your head, and 
the new album just like immediately went a totally different direction and it was you know it was it was exciting and like there weren't a lot of bands that would uh take the risk of doing something that extreme and uh so yeah it's like it's always kind of up there for me with that with just sort of the uh sort of ambitiousness of it and the the boldness of reinventing themselves uh at a time when they were you know pretty big but could have gotten even bigger and they decided to take this this hard left turn um, so yeah, and uh, well, I mean, we can get into this, but like the other sort of, I mean, I think I listening to it the last couple of days, I can't really separate it from all the other narratives that were around it at the time because they were just so like sort of perfectly attuned to this whole idea of like the uh, experimental record, the departure record, like between being dropped from their label and all the stuff around that and how it sort of, you know, they leaked it online themselves. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. I mean, there really was a perfect storm of narratives with right. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot because, you know, we've already touched on the, the September 11th uh, angle, which, you know, the only analogy I could make is that you know, now when you read music reviews, you know, everyone's talking about Trump's America. You know, every record is about Donald Trump. You know, even if it's not like explicitly about him, everyone is making connections to that. And right. in the early 2000s, th September 11th was that thing. And uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was one of the biggest records with that, if not the biggest record. I mean, you even had like a skyscraper on the cover of the record. Right. So, I mean, the iconography was there. So you had that narrative. You had the narrative that you just said about, you know, getting dropped from reprise records and this idea of how, you know, corporations are taking over the music industry and now, you know, a, a band like Wilco, which you would think maybe if it was the 70s, they would have been supported. Now they're being rejected. So that's a very sexy angle for for the music press. Right. Um, you have the whole uh, drama in the band with Jay Bennett, the Jay Bennett versus Jeff Tweedy stuff, which really came into the fold once the documentary, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, the Sam Jones movie, once that came out. And that was something that I think was probably bigger inside sort of the Wilco fan bubble. And I mean, that's still an argument that takes place, you know, whether firing Jay Bennett was the end of Wilco being a vital band. I mean, there's a lot of people that dropped off at that point. And, right. and we could talk about that later, too. Um, I mean, was there an, a narrative that was b bigger than the rest for you at the time that kind of helped frame the record for you? Well, like a lot of the stuff you just mentioned, like, you know, at, we're celebrating the 15-year anniversary of the record, but a lot of that stuff sounds like it happened, like, 100 years ago, like, <laughs> in terms of, like, would any of that stuff happen today? Like, the, the, mostly the idea of, like, being dropped from a major label and that being a big deal, like, I can't even imagine a similar scenario like in today's music industry. <laughs> and it always like, it, it was weird how that whole thing shook out, and I don't think there was anything made up about it, but it was just kind of ludicrous in the end that they were dropped by one Time Warner label and picked up by another. <laughs> like the whole thing sort of seemed a little fishy in the end, but like, you know, it just of course fit perfectly with this, you know, make them making the most difficult album they had ever made up to that point. Well, and, uh, but th that went on to become their biggest selling album, I think by far. I mean, I think it sold by now, I think it sold about 600,000 copies or something. And I, I don't know where the next Wilco 
record would be in terms of sales. I mean, now you wouldn't even judge a record by how well it's sold, but um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it is interesting you know, what you just said about how they were dropped by one subsidiary and then picked up by another subsidiary, which was none such, and how that was such a cause celeb at the time, that, uh, and, that and that became the narrative of the film. Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of, um, of even expecting a record label to stand by a band like this. I mean, I, I, I think people now would just assume, well, why would they stand by a band like Wilco? You know, like there, there's no expectation of a corporate record label even supporting a band like this. And then, you know, we also have Bandcamp now. So people would just be like, well, just put it on Bandcamp. You could sell it yourself and, you know, problem yeah, solved. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Wilco, I think they just self-release music now. Are they even on a label anymore? Well, I they, like Star Wars was because they just released it surprise online that well, that I think didn't really have a I, label. I think they have a partnership with 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 Anti Records. Mm. I think it's, I think it's Anti. They have their own record label, but it's one of those situations where they use the apparatus of another label to help them actually distribute music. Right. Um, but yeah, Star Wars, which came out in 2015, that was. Well, they just gave it away for free, and then they sold physical copies later on. Um, but but yeah, yeah. The, the whole being dropped thing. I mean, it, it's hard to sort of describe today because it does seem like such a foreign idea now. But it was such a great r- rally the fans around the flag sort of moment, right? Especially them releasing the album for everybody to hear. Like it had already been floating around whatever MP3 sites we were using at the time. So I remember sort of piecemealing a Yankee Hotel Foxtrot together um, around, like, probably, I, I would say it was before they started streaming it. Um, but it, you know, it was like everybody who was a Woco fan and knew their way around a computer could get it pretty easily. And I remember seeing them at one of those Thanksgiving Chicago shows uh, towards the end of 2011. And they played probably the whole album. And, you know, I think they did this at a lot of shows at the time, but Jeff Tweedy made a crack about, you know, how do all you people know all the words to all these, to these songs? Like, we haven't even released this music yet, sort of thing. So, I mean, it was like, you can't buy publicity like that, right? <laughs> that was, <laughs> right. That just built up the legend for everybody. Like, oh, this is such an important band that, you know, the man doesn't want to release their record, sort of thing. Well, yeah, and there was, you know... And I mean, you bring up a good point here. I, I wonder if, I mean, was Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, was that like the last big sort of like indie record by a band that's like not exactly famous, but like it just became sort of a cause in the music press? I mean, because now I feel like, um, you know, the music press would not boost an indie band like that. They would not get behind an indie band that was not already sufficiently famous. Like it's just not the way things operate anymore. Um, and I mean, you could make a case that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was just like, such a great record that people felt, uh, and, and Wilco had this sort of stored up goodwill that people just wanted to support them and, and, you know, kind of create this groundswell for them. But I, 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 you know, I, I wonder, I just feel like the press is so different now that, music writers wouldn't be inclined to support like whatever the modern equivalent of Wilco might be. Right. And they also, I mean, they've always had this sort of perfectly 
calibrated sound to bridge both like the real indie rock like extremists i guess yeah uh, at the time and sort of the like middle of the road like college rock i would say older college rock type of listener um particularly in chicago where like their shows it, i mean it was always kind of funny when i would see them in chicago versus seeing them in dc at the time it was like a 10-year difference in terms of like <laughs> average age and just like you know sort of a preppy like young professional crowd in chicago and then all the like sort of hipster crowd in dc like they were a band that could cross over like that at a time where i guess that sort of alt country you know classic rock thing was wasn't quite dead it was sort of on its last fumes right um and so they had you know sort of both this mainstream support as well as the you know sort of pitchfork level online support uh that a lot of bands i don't think ever had that sort of good mix i mean i'll I'll also go back to you know greg cott at the tribune has always had you know a tremendous amount of access to them and sort of insider info uh and he you know he broke the story about the being the album being dropped from the label and had a lot of, you know, inside information about how that all went down. And that really, you know, sort of made it a story, a national story. Whereas a lot of bands, especially today, I mean, that would all be controlled uh, in a much more, you know, tight way by a record company, if, if they even cared. Like I said, it's such a foreign concept today <laughs> like, for that to be an issue. The closest thing I could think of um, is maybe like all the Kesha stuff where she's like legally prevented from recording. And like that kind of has made her, you know, for a lot of other reasons, of course, too. But like there's this like big sort of cult of Kesha that's like come around her and like trying to get her to like, you know, perform new songs live and get right. this new music out. But she can't do it because of her deal with Dr. Luke and... I would say that that's like the closest modern thing we have to that. It's funny because the Kesha parallel came to mind too when we were talking about this, uh, but I didn't bring it up because I was like, "Am I going to be the guy who compares Wilco to Kesha?" But like, <laughs> I'm glad you opened the door. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously the difference with Kesha is that the circumstances are so much more tragic and outrageous, and right. you know, there's the you know, the whole thing with her and Dr. Luke and. And she, and she was also a much bigger star. Uh, you know, she had much bigger hits than Wilco did. Um, and that story still has not turned out well for her. I mean, like, Wilco really did come out. I mean, it was the best thing that ever happened to them was getting rejected by, or, you know, the whole sort of shenanigans that happened early. You know, because they, they got their record. I mean, the, I mean, you know, they, they reprised didn't want to put the record out, but they gave them the record back right. for so free. for free so i mean that's a i mean that's a pretty great <laughs> thing it wasn't like oh no you can't put this record out we're gonna hold it in a vault for uh you know years and years um a narrative i am interested in talking to you about um is the jay bennett narrative because this right. is something i think um continues with Wilco, you know, maybe not in the larger world, but among Wilco fans, I feel like there is still this thing with, with Jay Bennett. And I mean, Jay Bennett had a huge role in Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. He co-wrote, I think, all but three songs mm -hmm. on the record. And we mentioned Jesus, etc. before being a big pop hit or, you know, sort of like a big signature song from the record. He co-wrote that song. He co-wrote, I am trying to break your heart. Actually, that's a J Jeff Tweedy song, I think. I am trying to break your heart, but he co-wrote Camera, Radio Cure, War on War. I mean, 
one of the fascinating things about Yankee Hotel Foxtrot are all the demos that have been bootlegged. And mm-hmm. you can hear multiple versions of these songs. Versions that I think have more of a Jay Bennett imprint than what ended up on the record. Uh, I mean, J- Jim O'Rourke ended up remixing the record. And I think it ended up being a much more stripped down album than it, than it would have been maybe if Jay Bennett had remained in the fold. I mean, if, if you compare this record to Summer Teeth, for instance, Summer Teeth is a much more sort of poppy, ornate, kind of sugary record, which is much more akin to what Jay Bennett did before Wilco and after. Whereas uh, it seems like Jeff Tweedy made a decision at some point that he didn't want to have so much sound on his records, wanted to pull back and maybe... Jim O'Rourke kind of helped him realize that. Uh, I mean, does that? I mean, I mean, that seems to be like what has come out. I guess since the records come out, right? I mean, am I right on that? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with with all that. I mean, the, if you listen to the demos, it's kind of hard to like really pinpoint where in the process those are from. Like, they don't sound like demos, right? Necessarily, they're not Jeff Tweedy solo renditions of these songs they're like like, alternate versions yeah they're like fleshed out full arrangements full band arrangements of these songs and i mean to my ears it sounds like summer teeth too like that's like it sounds like bennett bennett's hand is very present and noticeable just in terms of how they're arranged and you know he liked he was a keyboard guy first and foremost he liked to put a lot of keyboard sounds on these songs and they were kind of you know strummy folk rock with like a little bit of like psychedelic pop over the top um so it's it, yeah the reason why they're so fascinating is because it could have been such a different album uh if it was kind of just left that way and i think it would have been come closer to summer teeth which i always kind of felt like was a little overdone, right. overcooked. There's just like so much going on on top of every song. I think Jeff Tweedy I, felt that way too, eventually. I believe, yeah, I think so. And like it was why I always liked sort of the live shows around that era because they only had five people. They could only, they had two keyboardists at the time, but you could only recreate so much of the album and it, just having it a little more punchy and direct sounded really great. Um, but then, I mean, I as far as the YHF, the myth of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot goes, I am a total like stand for Jim O'Rourke's involvement and like coming in and saving the day um, because it's just like it's it's night and day. Like he t- as I said, it sounds like such a different album, and I really like the album they put out a lot more <laughs> than what they could have put out, and I just think it's like a brilliant. He did a brilliant job, you know, and how much of it was Tweedy and how much was O'Rourke and how much was other people. Uh, but he did a brilliant job of this sort of, you know, creating this sort of deconstructed feel over the whole album and really like, you know, taking a lot out of it, which I think makes every, you know, remaining element so much more powerful than just having, you know, a Mellotron and a piano and an organ and a horn section over every single song. Uh, so, I, you know, and from seeing the documentary and reading Greg Cott's book and that sort of thing, it seems to be fairly true that O'Rourke came in and sort of saved the day. Well, and I, I think of that song Poor Places as being mm-hmm. a song that really evolved a lot. Like, I've heard demos of that song, which are, like you say, more in the vein of like a Summer Teeth 2 type thing where uh, it, it's much more fleshed out, much more sort of a folk rocky song. Whereas on the record, it's this sort of beautiful, ghostly, very spare song. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 
I actually, I love the demos or not demos, but like the alternate versions that have been bootlegged. I, I mean, I love it as sort of like a fascinating alternate version of the record. And I love them just because I think these songs are so great that they can withstand being presented in different guises. And it always sounds good to me. Um, but like poor places in particular, I think of that as being a song where that really benefited from being stripped back. And oh yeah, absolutely. That was, and yeah, it's like almost like I laughed when I listened to the demo of it earlier today at how just sort of upbeat and straightforward that song was before they pretty much dropped everything out except like howling guitar feedback and Jeff Tweedy's voice. Like, right. It like it's a completely different song, but with the same exact melody and tempo and everything else. And then I am trying to break you hard. It sounds really interesting to hear you talked about how it, you know, was sort of this broken thing that came together at the end. Uh, the demo of it is like if the end part was stretched out over the whole song, like it was, you know, it was still kind of like this warbly uh, psychedelic thing, but they basically took it and took every verse and dropped everything out and put in new sounds. And by the time it sort of comes together as a song at the end, it's like, you know, immensely more interesting and powerful than it was before. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny, like, it sounded like the coolest, newest thing in the world to me when it first came out. Um, but I was, of course, you know, a lot less knowledgeable about music at that time. And now I hear a lot, you know, a lot of antecedents. I mean, people bring up Big Star's third a lot. Right. It's like a very similar album. And so it doesn't really seem quite as revolutionary to me anymore. But, you know, as far as, you know, doing that thing, that sort of let's deconstruct our sound thing, uh, I think it's, you know, it's about as good as you could have done it. Um, yeah, at that time. Well, and I think, too, there's something to be said for, you know, the record, when it arrived at the time that it did, it was, I think it resonated with people because it sounded like it was ancient and futurist at the same time. Like there was something about it where it was like, well, this is 21st century folk music, you know, or this is sort of an aversion. This is like a version of Americana that doesn't seem sepia tinged. It seems modern. And, um, I think at the moment that it arrived, you know, in that sort of post 9-11 world, like that was something that people were really looking for, you know, because it reminded them of the past, but it also seemed very much of the moment. Uh, so, so there's something to be said, I think, for having good timing, you know, uh, even if maybe now when we listen to it, it doesn't have those circumstances anymore. Um, but at the time, anyway, that, I think that's how it translated to people. Yeah, and I think, you know, Jeff Tweedy got sick of alt-country at the same time as everybody else did. <laughs> right. Where if you want to revive the old, like, Sunvolt versus Woco rivalry, like, Sunvolt never changed from that. <laughs> right. Like, they always kind of embodied that space where, like, after being there, Tweedy was trying to figure out something new. I mean, he still wrote songs that were folk songs, essentially. Um, and that, I think, works to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot's benefit. Like, there's nothing structurally weird about those songs. Even I Am Trying to Break Your Heart, it's just a song that has a lot of verses. Right. Um, but, you know, having the sort of, you know, courage to change so drastically how they were presented, um, you know, he was, yeah, just on the right point in the curve for people's uh, taste for that sort of thing, I think. You know, it, it is fascinating to contemplate, like, the path that this record could have taken. I mean, kind of getting back to those 
alternate versions that are out there, which by the way, if you haven't heard them, I mean, it's very easy to find. I think you, if you can just Google Yankee Hotel Foxtrot demos, you can find links to download this stuff. But I mean, there's so many songs that date from this period that didn't make the record that are really some of my favorite Wilco songs, like Magazine Called Sunset, Venus Stop the Train, uh, Cars Can't Escape, uh, Not For The Season. Songs that I understand, I understand why they didn't make the album, because they don't really fit with the sound that Tweety was going for, and they do kind of exist in this weird between state between like Summer Teeth songs, especially like We're, uh, We're Just Friends, like that song, that kind of piano mm-hmm. ballad song in there. They wrote a lot of other songs in that vein that I think are really beautiful, like Venus Stop the Train again. I think that's a beautiful song. There's a bunch of different versions of Cars Can't Escape. There was actually a version released on that box set that they put out in 2014. Mm-hmm. But the version I love is the is this piano version where it just sounds like it's Tweety singing and Jay Bennett playing piano. Um just beautiful songs that didn't make the album, but I, I mean, it kind of goes back, you know, to that thing about the Jay Bennett Jeff Tweedy partnership. Um, I mean, how much stock do you put in that? I, I mean, because I think the, you know, there are a lot of Wilco records after that that I really like, um, but it certainly changed the structure of that. I mean, there was never going to be another partner in that band that was even close to Jeff Tweedy anymore. And I, I, I do wonder like what, I, if something was lost or how that affected the band. I mean, like, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, it does kind of seem like that is maybe the moment where Jeff Tweedy kind of made it his band, I guess, which, you know, probably was his original intent, intent with Wilco, but Jay Bennett, I think, was such a... Uh, something about his personality and his, you know, just his talent as being a multi-instrumentalist, writing his own songs, being really invested in arrangement and production. Uh, you know, it, it's pretty clear from the documentary that he considered himself, you know, an equal partner in the band by this point. Yeah. And I think Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was really like Tweety sort of reasserting his leadership role. And, you know, I mean, he's always been a big collaborator. And I think that's still true with Wilco. Like, I get the sense that while Tweedy, you know, always kind of comes in with the skeletal structure of the song, like even today, you know, there's a lot of input from from Nels Klein and from Glenn Kochi and all the, the other guys. Like, I think he likes being in a collaborative environment like that. Um, but yeah, it was not going to be the sort of, uh, you know, leader 1A and leader 1B format anymore after that point. And then, you know, and I do think they spent a lot of time after Yankee Hotel Foxtrot figuring out what they wanted to be. Um, there's that EP that came out. Uh, what is it? It's the uh, More Like the Moon EP. Yeah. Uh, that is like sort of an interesting little glimpse of not just sort of outtakes from Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, but also sort of what is the next step where, you know, he didn't really have somebody else to lean on as far as, you know, just, you know, instrumentally, if nothing else. Like, uh, you talk a lot about how he played a lot of lead guitar uh, at that time and for the next album. Um, So, yeah, so I think it was really sort of now this is Jeff Tweedy's band sort of line in the sand. Well, they they did have that period where, 
I think they were a four piece for a while uh, after Jay Bennett left. I because the I remember seeing Wilco after Yankee Hotel Foxtrot came out, and I think it was just Tweedy, Leroy Bach, John Starrett, and Glenn Kachi. Like, well, I, I do remember they had. At some point, they brought in Michael Jorgensen because yeah. he had a laptop on stage, and I remember that being <laughs> one of the first sort of, oh, my God, somebody's playing a laptop on stage at a concert yeah. <laughs> moments for me. And then he eventually became sort of the main keyboard guy when Leroy Bach left. But, yeah, it was a weird band there for a while. Yeah, and like, and Tweedy was doing all of the lead guitar stuff, which um, I I like... I like him as a lead guitarist. I mean, you know, the, the you, you mentioned that... Uh, more like the Moon EP, the, you know, there's the version of uh, Handshake Drugs, like the first version, which I think is still the best version of that song. Um, and I think even Tweedy says that in the liner notes of that box set. <laughs> yeah. um, but like just the his guitar playing on there, where that kind of scronky, atonal, but really cool sounding. Yeah, it was like guitar scraping in a way. Um, and... Uh, yeah, like you say, there was that period where he was, you know, you take Jay Bennett out of the band and there was so much music that he brought to that band and it left a hole in the sound, which I think Jeff Tweedy actually liked. He liked that spareness to it and uh, that really became a big thing on the next Wilco record, Ghost is Born, where it, it's so spare and then it's Tweedy just filling up that space with these like crazy guitar solos. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, it, I think a lot of my sort of well-documented disappointment was where they went after Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Like I've, I've softened on a lot just because there were it, at the time I was really sort of disappointed and let down that they didn't keep going in that direction. But now with some like perspective on it, there's like no way you could sort of recreate the conditions that made Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, where you had this sort of dramatic personnel shift halfway through. And basically, like they made one kind of album and then brought somebody in to turn it into another type of album. Like that's just not sustainable as a way to make records. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't ever going to be something that they could or even want to do again because, I mean, it's pretty clear in the documentary that Tweedy is not at his healthiest um, <laughs> while right. making that record as well. And, you know, a lot of, I think, the change in his music has been that he's just a healthier, happier guy, which is like something that I have a hard time begrudging him <laughs> right and now that I'm an older, you know, dad and all this stuff like he is. Uh, so, well, and I think, I mean, you know, you only get so many opportunities too to surprise people like that. You, you know, some of that is, um, what you do as an artist, but also it, it's also the audience itself and what they expect. I mean, because a record like star Wars, that's a there's some pretty noisy discordant things happening on that record even schmilko i think their most recent record um i think is stranger than people give it credit for um they're especially lyrically but also musically i mean there's a lot um you know i think people listen to a record like that and they just hear it as this low-key mellow type record but there's a lot going on under the surface i think on that album that maybe people give it credit for i mean i just feel like at some point 
you become a classic rock band no matter what you do just because you've been around for a long time and you're a band of a certain age. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of my take on the last couple albums is that they are a very comfortable band and I enjoy them, but they don't really leave sort of the divot in my brain that their older stuff used to. Um, I mean, so, but I mean, it's like, you know, they, they got a good thing going. Like, yeah. they have their like little crew of people. They run their own festival. They play a bunch of shows in Chicago. They tour minor league baseball stadiums. Like, you know, there's, you know, like, you know, fish in a lot of ways. They've kind of found their niche and they're just like sort of workmanlike in inhabiting that world. <laughs> I like that you worked in a fish comparison. Well, I had to, yeah. It was very on brand. I like it. <laughs> I'm happy you did that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, again, I, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, Wilco at, if, if I was going to say Wilco made like a cruise control record, it would have been Wilco the album. I feel like yeah. that album was pretty cruise control. That was like, taking the sort of like autumn defense wing of Wilco um, and totally making that the main aesthetic, like where they just made a straight sort of 70s sounding soft rock record where like, it's like, we're, we're going to make the guitar sound like America, America, <laughs> the band, you know, and, and he really let that sort of wing of the band take over. I really think that like, I mean, especially the, the last two records to me are essentially, they sound like Jeff Tweedy solo records, where the other members are sort of making contributions here and there. I think Glenn Kachi is a very important person on those two albums. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we didn't talk about sort of Ken Coomer being rele- uh, being uh, fired from the band and then Glenn Kachi coming in. I mean, that was another big part of Jeff Tweedy sort of remaking the sound of Wilco from a straightforward rock band because Ken Coomer was this sort of great in the pocket John Bonham type drummer to Glenn Kachi, who has a lot more finesse where the drums are almost speaking in a way, you know, yeah, having a conversation is, with the vocals. Yeah. He is like the most melodic drummer. I think like I've ever heard. Right. <laughs> like, and like, not just with his Wilco stuff, like on that William Tyler album from last year, it's like an incredible drum performance, I think, because he just doesn't, nobody sounds like him. And yeah, and you're right, you like, so, you know, as the story goes, you know, he got connected, Tweedy got connected to Jim O'Rourke, who then brought in Glenn Kachi, and they did the one-off sort of loose fur show and recorded that album, and then that's kind of what impacted the direction of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And, I mean, you couldn't do this sort of stripped-down approach with Ken Coomer, like it just wouldn't have worked. Well, like, yeah, like, <laughs> I think a lot of the demos, you know, make that very clear. And supposedly they had a lot of arguments about just that. Like, you know, Tweedy had something else in his head that he wanted to do rhythmically. And uh, yeah, it just wasn't the style that Coomer was set up to play. So yeah, Glenn Kachi is, you know, also, I think, secret ingredient number two to why it was such a successful leap. Yeah, I mean, I just think of the like the drums on Radio Cure, just like what he's doing early in that song, which is like almost a subliminal type playing, mm. and then what he yeah, he kind of comes in at the end with a more kind of conventional drum part. But like, um, there's a lot of little things like that on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot where you know there's rhythms on that record that you don't always detect right away. It's not like a conventional type drum sound like if you listen to am or being there 
Ken Coomer is that kind of kick-ass 70s style drummer like and he's great at that but if you want something that uh is kind of communicating something on a more subtle level uh or someone who could just do a range of things because Glenn Kachi can also be a kick-ass drummer too if he needs to be Mm -hmm. um you know that was a big thing I you know obviously and as far as Wilco developing into a different kind of band a band that could just do whatever Jeff Tweedy wanted to do you know right um be his instrument uh, so, I mean, it sounds like you enjoyed revisiting it after not listening to it for a while, that it, it held up maybe better than you expected. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like sort of in the current maybe indie rock moment we're at, where there are a lot of, there is sort of a return to, I would say, sort of folk in like a, a broad definition of it, just in terms of, you know, a lot of these like Riley Walker, Steve Gunn types who are, you know, like very capable acoustic sort of folk guitarists. I mean, more than capable. They're all like outstanding technicians, but they do this sort of like, I guess, you know, psychedelic variant of folk um, and very sort of minimal more often than they are sort of maximalist. Um, I think Yuki Hotel Foxtrot fits rather well with, with those kind of albums that have been coming out lately. So whereas well, like... Summer Teeth, I think, sounds really like it did not age well. <laughs> and it just does. I think it's uh, it, it's kind of trapped in its sort of like late 90s moments. Um, yeah, Yankee Delta Foxtrot actually holds up as something that sounds a little a little bit timeless and still modern. See, I'll I'll still stand up for Summer Teeth. I still like that record a lot. I think it I think it's it's held up better than you say. But I do agree that the production on that is a little more, uh, it's certainly more heavy-handed than it is on Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. You know, when you, you were talking about modern equivalents, I thought of the last Bonnie Iver record, hmm. too, to 22 a million being an example of, like, a person who's associated as being a sort of a straight-down-the-line folky singer-songwriter type trying to sort of contend with a modern moment and using technology in a way to sort of twist and turn stuff in a different direction but at its core it's still this sort of emotional singer-songwriter stuff yeah but i feel like that's sort of like the you know that would be a parallel i would make to a record more recent as being like a yankee hotel foxtrot type move you know like where he was clearly trying to break out of whatever niche that he felt he was in by you know totally subverting a traditional type folk type record or whatever yeah, and it's interesting. My sense is that it didn't, you know, play nearly as well for him as it did, like independent of the the quality of the two records. Like, they seemed to get a lot more scorn. I think. Well, I mean, <laughs> that Wilco did like. Well, it was reviewed well. I think again, it's just a different moment. You know, yeah. like uh, in two thousand two, it was much. Uh, you know, I think critics were more likely to get behind something like that. Whereas now, you know, there's a pretty verbal contingent of critics who are sort of predisposed to not liking that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> anyway. Although, I, I, in a way, I, I mean, my sense is that the is that twenty two million maybe did better than uh, than you think, but I don't know. It, it, it's it definitely didn't have the impact of of a Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. It, it, but I, again, I think it's just hard to do that now. Right, uh, Rob. Always a pleasure. 
Uh, hope to make you a three-time guest very soon, but uh, I appreciate you coming on this time, man. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of fun, so happy to do it whenever. All right, man, take care. All right, see you. All right, that was me and Rob Mitchum delving into Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Still a great record 15 years later. Summer Teeth, I'm going to defend Summer Teeth. I, I know people are going to be tweeting at me saying that we knock Summer Teeth. I, I still like Summer Teeth a lot. Um, if I were to rank my favorite Wilco records, I would say Being There is probably number one, followed by Ghost is Born, and then Summer Teeth and Yankee Hotel Foxtrot kind of duel it out for the next record after that. Um, guys, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you are a fan of this podcast, help us spread the word. Uh, it's always helpful if you can talk to your friends about us, recommend that this is a good listen if you just like hearing conversations about music. Um, also, uh, if you can leave us a rating on iTunes, that's always a great way uh, you know, for, for people who are just sort of checking out podcasts to listen, listen to. If they see a high rating, they're more likely to check it out. So if you can do that, that would be great. Um, or you know, just talk about us on social media, recommend us, or curse our name. You know, if you didn't like this podcast, if you thought we were totally wrong about Wilco, talk about us then too. You know, just help us spread the word any way that you can. Uh, thank you again for listening, guys. Uh, we will uh, talk to you again next week. <laughs>